last week we started a, a series, as, as Paul said, we're looking at conversations with Jesus where we're just sort of dropping into some of the conversations uh, that Jesus had throughout his ministry with people who are just like you and me, had just the same questions that you and I have, have the same fears, the same hopes and expectations and they came to Jesus to talk to him about them or he went to them and talked to them and we're looking at how his words, how his conversations challenged and changed uh, their lives. And we've said no one ever walked away from a conversation with Jesus unaffected, indifferent. Uh, often the conversations with Jesus would demand more than they thought uh, when they went to Jesus, but often they offered more than they'd hoped. And I think that's true today uh, as we get into them. So, hey, let's, let's pray and, and we'll get to work. Uh, no PowerPoint today. Spent my day trying to escape the, uh, my office, so didn't get around to doing a PowerPoint. So you, you just got that, but I'm sure you can cope. Hello, and Father, how, how deeply grateful uh, we are that you sent your son into our world to talk uh, to us, to have conversations with us about how do we, how do we receive eternal life. How is it possible uh, for people who, who live in rebellion, for people who live uh, self-absorbed lives to become part of your family, uh, have a place at your table and enjoy your goodness in our lives, uh, not just for a time being but forever, for eternity? This morning as we look at Jesus' answer to the question of eternal life, would your spirit uh, challenge us and, and change us and leave us secure uh, in the hope though of eternal life that is found in your Son. And the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, well, today we are having looking at a conversation, as we've seen, that revolves around the question uh, that pretty much I think everybody at some point of their life, at some time, wants an answer to. What is required for us to have eternal life? And the, or the presupposition or, or some of the, the, the held ideas to this question gets completely blown up uh, by what Jesus says and what he has to say as he answers that. We often think that if we, if we only knew what to do, then, then we would literally go and do that. That's what we think. If we knew what to do, if we knew what, what it was, we'd go and do it. Well, this is a conversation that begins with so much potential it gets challenging and personal and it ends up with a, a fairly jarring conclusion. But within it, there is an offer of imperishable treasure, an offer of uh, comforting grace that, that comes uh, through this conversation. Uh, this, this incident, this conversation, actually appears in all three of the synoptic gospels. Synoptic gospels are Matthew and Mark and Luke. Uh, and each of these writers fills us in with a, a little bit more detail that's unique to their recording. Mark lets us know that the character in this conversation with Jesus is a man. And then Matthew fills in that this, this man is a young man. He's probably between the ages of, of 20 to 40, which is encouraging to hear that 40 is considered young. So that's, a, that's kind of that's, that's a, a good start there. And Luke lets us know that this young man is a certain ruler. So he's possibly a religious leader, lay religious leader, could even be possibly a Pharisee. So these, these descriptions combined with this man's own answers to Jesus' questions, tell us uh, that his own self-understanding and his social uh, credibility, if you like, are off the charts. This guy is a high achiever. He's socially a high achiever. He's economically successful. Uh, 
He's morally successful. He's religiously successful. Uh, he probably got voted most likely to succeed in the Sunday school classes that were attached to the uh, to the synagogue and that kind of thing. And while we're not told this, I'll put my 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 life on it that he is probably you know Ryan Gosling good looking, a real kind of Bradley Cooper setup we're dealing with here. And if he walked into our church today, we would be tempted. We we just couldn't help ourselves. Uh, our natural instinct would be to gather around this guy and, and make sure he stayed and, and hang around him. You'd you'd probably want him to sit next to your unmarried daughter or something like that. I wouldn't. I'd I'd have my gun out. But you know that'd be the the way we'd approach this guy. He's an extraordinary person with an extraordinary reputation. And it's his goodness, uh, it's his, his, his reputation, his morality, his, his social justice that gets him into the inner circle of Jesus, that allows him to approach Jesus like this. Mark tells us that, that he ran up and he knelt before Jesus, right in front of him. So he's standing, gets him access, past the disciples who in this chapter, in chapter 19, have just been shooing people away, like, get away from Jesus. Why are you bothering him with all these children and unwanted people? And they've been rebuking people for you know, getting into Jesus' space and invading his day. Now this guy, straight up, they let him straight through. Here is a person on the face of it, according to all our social and all our uh, religious categories, if you like, and the disciples were probably thinking this too. Oh, here comes a, here comes a candidate for, to be a disciple. He's a candidate for eternal life, for heaven. Surely if anybody's fit for it, it's this guy. And yet, he is himself unsure. With a sneaking suspicion, a nagging uh, insecurity that he needs to do more. And that perhaps he could put the matter beyond doubt by doing some great deed, some, some great act of virtue, by adding some practice to his life, to his already impressive life that he has. This man comes to Jesus as a, as a pin-up boy, a poster boy, uh, for what we would define as a life that God should find acceptable. And he puts on the table the same lurking insecurities that we have all felt. Am I good enough for God? Am I acceptable to God? What must I do to have eternal life? And eternal life is not merely, you know, the duration of life, just eternally more of what we already have, but eternal life is a, is a quality of life, a, a different quality of life that we, that we have now in which we actually experience, feel and experience the approval of God. We enjoy his favor and his blessing, his mercy and his grace, and that just endures forever. Well, addressing Jesus as teacher here in Matthew, he asks, what good deed uh, must I do? Mark and Luke tell us that the man addressing Jesus says, good teacher, you know, what, what thing must I do? What Matthew, but Matthew implies the goodness of God. It's not in the address, but it's in the question that Jesus is good. It's a rather extravagant uh, thing to say about a leader, a leader or a person that they are a good teacher at all it's it's unheard of unseen in any writing in any address but for Matthew it's implied in the question because only a good teacher could give you uh, advice on on things that are good on things that are definitively good there's no indication that this rich young man is clued into the true identity of Jesus 
If anything, he just regards Jesus as a contemporary, one who has mastered life that mastered a life that God approves of. In particular, his Jesus, this Jesus character seems to have mastered the scriptures and an understanding of the law. So maybe Jesus can point this man into the area that he lacks in, that he feels lacking. Maybe he approaches Jesus a little bit like Nicodemus does. He sees in Jesus an undeniable approval of God in his life. And he hopes to find out how he, can, how he can be likewise, how he can know something that Jesus knows, that he can apply, add on, put into his life. Still, the man's not there to identify the true nature of Jesus. He is there to talk about his own personal concerns that he has about salvation, about how he gets eternal life with a teacher who has obviously distinguished himself. And here is where Jesus begins to challenge what is a pretty widely held understanding of of religion, of Christianity and its relationship with reward and, and eternal life. That it is merely a matter of externalities, that it's about your performance, it's about balancing up the ledger. The questioner assumes that there is that his ultimate salvation can be secured by doing some some good thing, by by adding some great act to his life, something even beyond the law that, that he's seen by adding a yet-to-be-explored practice or activity that his personal piety has not yet uh, been satisfied by. How common. As I was thinking about this, how common is this in the human heart? It pervades everything we do. Uh, You kind of know I'm a bit of an Avengers, Marvel characters sort of a, a fan. And that whole franchise, that whole series trades on this kind of nostalgic logic that no matter how much red you have in your ledger, you can wipe it clean with some kind of great sacrificial act. You can work your way back into favour somehow. That's what the Black Widow longs for in that series. It's what Yondo achieves uh, in in Guardians of the Galaxy. You'll have to watch Endgame to see who else uh, redeems themselves from the demons of their past. I think it's still too early for spoilers, so we won't go there. But but we think there's a narrative in our soul, there's something in our hearts that feels like we can work our way into the favour of God. We can do some great act. The script that of the human heart, that it plays out in movie, movies everywhere, emerges in us as an insecurity that needs to be constantly fed, constantly reassured. Have I done enough? Is there something more? How do I get eternal life? What must I do to earn God's favour? This is also where Jesus begins to separate Christianity from other worldviews and and religious constructions. Jesus' answer, in his answer, says, "Why, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. This answer has nothing at all to do with Jesus, but rather he is challenging the young religious mind about the idea that there is some unknown good thing that's being withheld from him, that that he hasn't been able to come into or or know so so far. There's some level of attainment or information out there of of what is good that he hasn't hasn't been made privy to and maybe Jesus just kind of knows about it. God alone is good. This is not a statement of difference between God and Jesus, as some people have tried to say. It's just a fact about God that Jesus himself is free to make without any reference to himself. God is good, and, he's, and in his goodness, he has given people the law. 
the law as a visual guide, as visual aids, as standards of, of what a life looks like that God approves of. Here it is, all written out for us. If you want eternal life, keep the commandments. Jesus at this point is drawing attention to a common understanding that a person who keeps the law is in line for eternal life. But he invites this man in this conversation to push past his actions, to push past his dutiful keeping of this law and actually consider the God behind the law, who is good. Why would you keep his commandments if he's not? Merely to gain more of what you already have? Merely to say, oh, here's a nice prescription for life. If I, if I do this, I'll, I'll, I'll get wealth, I'll get goodness. Or, 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 are you, or, or what drives your religious duty? Is it the idea of earthly treasures? Or is it the idea or the knowledge that behind it is a good God that I must know, that I must seek, that I, that I must be near to? Draw near to him. Eternal life is found in total trust of the goodness of God revealed in his word and his commands to us. This trust that his word is enough is lived out by people in their, uh, try to work out how to, how to say this, in their perfect, imperfect obedience. Like we, we follow it imperfectly, but, we're, but we're, we're, we're perfect at trying to follow it, if that makes sense. And as we do, it is the seal and the security of eternal life. God has not been holding out on you. He is good. His word to you is good. But perhaps, perhaps, you have been overstating your goodness. Sin makes us self-protective. Sin makes us self-promotive. Sin blinds us to our own uh, deadness, our own darkness. We like to point at the things that kind of cover that up, that, that are cosmetics. This is not to say, Jesus is not saying that keeping the law alone earns salvation, earns eternal life. No, rather how one approaches and trusts the God of the law reveals in your your heart whether your heart has affections for him or merely for his blessings, merely that your good life would keep going. Keeping the law because you love God or keeping the law because you love the perceived benefits and stuff that seems to come perhaps hopefully an eternity with that stuff. The rich young ruler hopes that Jesus will give him a particular commandment that he should focus on. After all, there are a lazy 613 laws uh, and perhaps maybe there's something beyond these 613 laws that he could do. But Jesus simply points him to the second half of uh, the Ten Commandments. You shouldn't murder, you shouldn't commit adultery, don't be stealing, don't be lying. Honour your mother and your father. And then he summarises these up with the golden rules. Love your neighbour as yourself. In short, Jesus puts down on the table the Jewish understanding of what it is to be good. Nothing new, nothing exciting here. But Jesus has laid down a description of life that can be maintained by externalities. It's all about what you do on the outside. It's all about keeping up appearances, having good relationships with each other, doing the right thing. It's all external, the stuff that Jesus has, or all capable of being achieved externally, all the stuff that Jesus has listed here. The rich young ruler hoped for something extra, perhaps something not so ho-hum, 
I already do the law. All these I have kept. And Mark and Luke add that he's kept them since he was a child. I've led a good life. Ask the people around us. Ask them about uh, how my life is lived with regard to my life, lived in accordance with the law. No one would accuse me of of not being a community-minded, of not giving to the poor, of being unfaithful to my wife. He's a little bit like Paul in Philippians 3. He's lived a strict life of discipline to a code. And yet he's left thinking, "Is, is that it? Is that all there is? I still lack. What, what do I still lack? I've kept the commandments that you mentioned. Why? Why this persisting, lurking sense of, of insecurity, of lack? Well, Jesus has brought this young man to a place where he can kind of articulate, identify that there's more to eternal life, uh, than more to serving God than just being moral, than just being good, than just turning up to church, than just tithing, than just helping out at the working bee. Even if that morality, even if all that flows out of a dutiful observation to the law, this man seeks more. And Jesus recognises his spiritual thirst and his spiritual ambitions. And this is where the conversation turns. It's where the conversation gets personable. And he moves from externalities to internalities. From actions of his hands to the motivation of his heart. And what and what it truly desires, what it, what it truly serves. Jesus takes this young man to the inner place of his heart where his values are formed and challenges him to see what is most cherished in there. What is the most cherished value within you? In essence, the ruling God of your life. Well, this God and not the truly good God, holds his heart, he will always continue to feel lack. He will always continue to feel a certain insecurity, a certain barrenness of his soul. Mark's Gospel gives us some insight into this. Mark tells us that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus is going after his heart. He sees past this man's cosmetics. He sees past this man's intellectual smokescreen. This man comes with academic questions, intellectual questions around doctrine and duty and some other task, some higher task. And Jesus is going to have none of that. It's now more than just an intellectual conversation. Jesus is reading his soul like a book, going after his heart. Do you really want to know what you lack? You lack perfect, matured, unchallenged affection for God. And this word perfect is not you know, without sin. This word perfect is more about complete, unchallenged, utter dedication. You're quite prepared to discipline yourself to the outward stipulations of the law even perhaps perform some kind of super duty. But there is something that you are not willing to forego, something that holds your heart. If you want to be perfect, again, if you want to be complete, if you want to be mature in this area, fully experience the spiritual maturity that you lack, sell what you possess and give it to the poor. And then you will have treasures in heaven and you 
follow me. Jesus is saying there is no place for power struggles in the kingdom of God, in the experience of eternal life. It is only fully enjoyed when the heart is fully and unconditionally uh, loves the good God above all other priorities, all other ambitions, all other treasures that we can gather into our lives. Anything that you think will deliver joy in the absence of God is robbing you from this experience. Anything that drives you without, without affection for God will become a monster in your heart, a slavish God that will leave you with this endless insecurity, this endless lack. That's your big challenge. It's a graphic picture. All your money, go sell all you have. And it's unique to this man and this situation. Christians, uh, disciples of Jesus, are not uniformly required to go and give away all they own. There are some very wealthy Christians in the New Testament. Jesus stays in their homes. He borrows their tombs. But we do uniformly lose ownership of all we own and how it's best used and where it's best resourced. Jesus loves this man and he sees that his wealth keeps his heart from truly loving and trusting in the goodness of God for his, for his well-being, for his security, for his eternal security. Jesus is saying to him, I want your heart. I want your dreams, your heart, where your, where, where your affections lie. Anything that you think will deliver joy in the absence of me over and above me becomes, becomes this monster, becomes this idol of your heart that will kill you, that will rob you of eternal life. So you have got to kill that. You have got to get rid of that. We don't like the idea of losing control of our lives to God. But this is what he lacks This is what the man lacks. Trust in the goodness of God. He must let God decide how much money he has, how much success he will have, as do we all. We think the problem is intellectual, but really there is a deep fear in the heart about who is in control and how we gain joy. But letting go means you are freed from serving the things of this world that leave you insecure, that leave you lacking to being able to follow Jesus, to being able to have an unhindered um, relationship with Jesus. Following Jesus is not just another thing to do, something to add to your life, but is the surrendering of all things. If you would be perfect, if you would be complete, And a true indication that the grace and the goodness of God has transformed the heart from a life of self-sufficiency to a life of faithful dependence and love for God. It is the seal and the security of eternal life. Here is where the heart finds an alternative treasure that trades in the currency of heaven and eternity. Jesus says, give up your small ambitions, your petty gods. And see that if you have Jesus, you are truly rich. You will be truly rich towards others. You will be truly rich towards God. 
There is nothing compared to what Jesus offers. No thief can steal, no moth destroy the life and the treasure to be found in him. Jesus is saying, I am your wealth. I am your treasure. I am your your righteousness, your security, uh, your approval before God. I am your goodness before God. Not your works, not your morality. Eternal life is found in giving your life over to me. That's what's in this phrase. Come follow me. And you know something? Sort of vice versa. You become his treasures. You have a treasure in, don't you see? You are highly loved by this God. Not left longing anymore. Jesus is saying, don't rejoice in the things that you do, that you achieve. Rejoice that you have an an imperishable treasure in heaven. Now, Now, what could that be? Is there a 79 series Toyota Hilux with unlimited kind of diesel waiting up there for me? Who who is here? Who can remember when we did the book of Exodus and we looked at the high priest and we looked at the garment that he put on as he went into the Holy of Holies and we saw how this high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies and 12 stones written on his heart with the names of the tribes of Israel written over his heart as he went into the presence of God. And Jesus is the great high priest, the permanent high priest who, who, who now is in heaven. All other priests pass away, but not Jesus. You make Jesus your treasure and God makes you uh, his treasure, your name written on his heart in the presence of God. It's an imperishable relationship that cannot be taken from you, cannot be stolen from you, described as treasure in heaven. In this conversation, Jesus smashes some of the basic assumptions this uh, rich young man has and most of us have about Christianity, about religion indeed. He came knowing he lacked and he was looking for something to add, something to do. And he assumes that Christianity is just you know, something that you add, something that you do. And Jesus says, eternal life is not found by adding stuff. You don't add me. You start fresh with me. I blow up everything. In another conversation that, we, that he had with Nicodemus, he says, you don't know anything about the kingdom of heaven. You know nothing unless you're born again. Born again you, to follow me. You don't need another rule. You don't need another duty. You need a new heart. You need a whole new approach. Jesus is saying there is no upgrade. I'm not an upgrade. This man come wanting a teacher and not a Lord. He wants a pat on the back, but he went away saddened. Which is actually far too soft a word for what he felt. The word saddened doesn't convey what's actually going on here. He's actually deeply grieved and traumatized. And it becomes a model of how hard it is for a person to trust in the goodness of God found in Jesus when their lives are lived in self-funded, self-fueled security, self-funded and self-fueled comfort. It is terribly hard to let go of. Not impossible. The the passage finishes. The disciples are like, if this dude, if this model citizen, if his actions, his morality can't save him, then who on earth can be saved? And Jesus says, yeah, it is impossible to save yourself. 
But it's not impossible for God to save you. If God is first, all other things are trivial. They're held loosely. Jesus points out that nobody loves God perfectly, completely. Uh, if, if nobody loves God completely, completely and perfectly is a true sign of eternal life. So to where their heart is, not, not if they do their actions completely and perfectly, but where their heart is, is a true uh, sign of eternal life. That it's not held captive uh, to another power, to another God. This man's problem isn't that he needed a little more goodness. His problem was that he couldn't face his ungoodness. That his heart was owned by something other than God. And that's the great departure that Christianity takes from all other religions. It's not about what you do. It's not about... This is not a, a, a conversation about intellectual capacities, about your morality. This is a conversation about what your heart treasures most. The heart that follows Jesus is treasuring God above all things. And this is a heart that experiences eternal life, the goodness of God, and that we, in turn, are his treasure. Eternal life. How, how do I gain eternal life? You don't need to be good enough. You don't need to get moral enough. There's no level of intellectual greatness, no profound theological uh, competence. You need your heart to be melted by the goodness of God, a God who would send Jesus after you to become your goodness, to become your morality and make you an imperishable treasure in the kingdom of God. What holds the affection of your heart what do you daydream about in, in, in your quiet moments? Where, where does your heart go? Where does your mind go? What do you daydream about? That'll tell you what the treasure of your heart is. What, what are your nightmares? What is it if it was taken from you, you would just lose your mind, your world would end? I can't live without my wife. I can't live without my kids. I can't live without my 30-30 marlin, whatever it is. What do you have nightmares about? That's an idol. That's, that, that's something that's in the way that holds your affections before God. And Jesus is saying, you've got you to get to these before you can have perfect, complete affection with me. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you again uh, that you would send your son into this world, that your son would come and have conversations with us about these, about these questions, that you would draw us to answers uh, that, as we've said at the start, they demand more of us, but they offer so much more. How is it that we have eternal life? We just simply surrender our hearts to you. We simply say we need Jesus above all other things in this world. And in that we find a deep satisfaction that brings joy. Lord, as we sit, as this young man sat with this question, as it rattled around in his head, he went away grieved because he just perceived that it was too much, a bridge too far. Lord, I pray that uh, we would not see it as a bridge too far, that we would see it as, that for those of us who know you, are just warmed and joyed by this idea that we, we could have a relationship with you. For those who go away grieved, that that would be a space that continues to challenge and we, we never walk away indifferent. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.